to 64, a chess podcast. I am David coming at you as always from Copenhagen, Denmark. My guest today is the coach of Magnus Carlsen, five-time Danish chess champion, many-time world championship winner as a coach, um, also fellow podcaster with the Chicken Chess Club. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter Heine Nielsen to the show. How's it going? It's going fine. I'm sitting here in the uh... In Stavanger uh, during the chess tournament, and while we are recording, Magnus is playing round three. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you can argue I'm skipping work uh, to to do a podcast with you. And thanks for the invitation, by the way. But also, it's my job to follow his game. So I will have a sort of a look at the board while we are talking. I hope that's okay with you. Probably you'll that's do more than okay with me because you know podcasters got to talk a lot, and uh, yeah, you can always watch a chess game while someone else talks about nonsense. And this was a very uh, special episode because I did a uh, I did a scholarship exchange scholarship here uh, in Denmark called the Fulbright, and Fulbright is all about cultural exchange. And uh, you know, part of my cultural exchange ended up being chess. So who better to talk to than the uh, currently, I guess, number one uh, ranked chess player in Denmark? Yes and no. I'm the highest ranked Danish chess player at the moment, but uh, I'm inactive. Uh, so it really depends how you define things and such. But, so would it it'd be Bierre right now, right? Probably is number one. I think right now it would be officially Jonas Bierre if you type into feeder and you click remove uh, inactive players. Uh, so well, we have a young promising uh, generation who sort of, I think at least three of them has been number one uh, sort of by, by rating there. So there is um, it's quite some competition there at the moment, which is quite good because else uh, I think since uh, Larsen became our strongest uh, player, we only had three who were sort of number one in Denmark for maybe 60 or 70 years. So it, it's good if there's more competition than there's been historically. And also, yeah, it's funny that uh, I'm Danish, but I'm sitting in Norway and living in Lithuania, and while uh, you're actually the one living in Denmark. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, uh, nice to me to, to speak with the guys at home in that way. Yeah, definitely. I also, mentioning Bent Larsen, I think that's one of the really cool things about um, the chess scene in Copenhagen, at least, is uh, I've been to a couple of clubs in Copenhagen for the league and stuff, and you see Bent Larsen posters and pictures everywhere. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I mean, he was, uh, well, he's by far our biggest name. Uh, and, uh, well, ever in, in chess, of course, well, we had the Nimsovic as well, who was a Danish citizen, but of course uh, didn't, uh, well... Didn't start out as a Dane in, in that sense, but Larsen, well, is uh, well, he's the main part of our chess culture and such. And everybody from my generation grew up uh, reading about Ben Larsen, and uh, not reading about by La- Ben Larsen, but especially reading Ben Larsen himself. He was an excellent author. He's written a lot of good stuff in English, but of course, he's really done a lot of great stuff in, in Denmark. So. Well, the way I studied chess was actually to go to the library in, in Holstebro, uh, where I would read um, Ben Larsen's article in the chess, chess old chess magazines and such, and study like this. And, uh, well, a bit funnily, Ben Larsen was doing exactly the same. He was going to the same library, also studying chess. But uh, unlike me, he didn't have such good material because, uh, well, he had to write it himself later in life. life. But uh, I think you have a very good point that from at least... Uh, the older generation in, in Danish chess, which uh, I now belong to, I would say I'm 49. Well, we have incredible respect for Larsen, both as an author, as a player, and as a person. And we, well, we had um, the chance to meet him and such. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But it's it's going to be up to you. You're the you're the one sort of forming the, this uh, conversations here. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I also wanted to ask you is how involved do you consider yourself in the whole Danish chess scene these days? Because obviously you you work with Magnus. Um, speaking of which, I've read that Magnus's first chess book was Find the Plan by Ben Larson, and that's a exactly. good book. Yeah, uh, Find the Plan is a uh, is a very good book in the sense that it has like I forgot the number, but maybe like fifty positional exercises in a way, and it's quite atypical in the sense that normally. In exercise book, they will be tactical, but this is more about understanding positional uh, concepts. And uh, no, that uh, was uh, Magnus's uh, first chess book, and I've even seen the actual copy of it, so I, I know it's it's, it's true. And uh, no, that made it. I think um, well, it's positions with typical plans, but always with some kind of twist that makes it slightly atypical. Maybe you have to fix a favorable pawn structure. Maybe in the King's Indian, sometimes you will play a4 to force h5 and you get the g5 square. Or you will play g4 to block the counter attack. And if they play f5, you will take twice and get the e4 square. So basically by doing exercises, he somehow forces you to think about precisional problems and understand things like that. And uh, this was a book that made, uh, well, it was Magnus's first uh, chess book and made an impression on him and also on a lot of other things. And uh, well, for me, obviously, it's several uh, Larsen books. I, when I was going to the World Juniors and such, I would bring uh, three, four Larsen books with me because that was my knowledge at the time. Of course, now we all use computers, but that was actually, I'm, I'm that old, that, that's not, not how things were at the time. Yeah, you actually, speaking about computers is also interesting because uh, I don't know if, you, I'm sure you know this book, that uh, this the Nod Files, I think. Uh, I ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, so I, this has been like my uh, my favorite chess book for the last year that I've been reading. I've been reading it very, very carefully. Mm -hmm. I've been going through all the games. Uh, actually, I actually went through it again last night, the um, the Moscow section, because, you know, as you know, I'm sure you celebrated the 10 year anniversary, basically, of the of the Gelfand and the Nun match. Um, mm -hmm. That that incredible rapid victory that was very recently. That was like maybe, you know, a week ago, like three days ago. And it was the day when things started here in the in uh in Stavanger and well I went up to Vichy and said Hany happy anniversary and it took a while before he grasped that we were not talking about uh, well um, personal relations rather than uh, chess things and such but uh, yeah this was 10 years ago so so time flies in a way but uh, yeah you're right but you're asking something about the book or no no I was going to mention you know why I brought up this book is because it seems like to me that you know the whole like I guess modern opening prep thing that happens, you know, was really pioneered in that, that Krem, I mean, I know people had the books before, but like the Kremnik, a non-match, let's say that, I think that's really where you had, had the war of the computers. Uh, I think there were somewhat before that, but still, yes, I think, um, well, you can argue with the team Anand, we almost tried to take it to, I wouldn't say industrial level, but we tried to push it incredibly hard. And I think also, well, there was a phase well, that made a lot of sense, simply. I mean, engines was worse at the time. So if you put in more effort, if you put in more human input, you could actually quite improve on the analysis. I think recently, if you look in, in World Championship matches, preparation has played a smaller role in the extent that everybody seems to find the same moves with the, because we use the same engines, because they have become so good and such. But at that point, um, well, we felt that uh, putting in a lot of effort made actually results and uh, well i think also for instance magnus in his matches the clear premise has been that well he's the better chess player so we generally don't want to decide it by preparation we don't think that's why he has his biggest edge 
while vicious matches was generally considered close, maybe Moscow being the difference, but the first two one was basically considered coin flips. And when it's so equal, it maybe makes more sense to try and maximize in the opening phase. And we tried very hard to, to do that. And you're right that this book tries to describe it in, in, in detail and such. But uh, well, I don't think it's a secret that during Team Anand, we tried to work incredibly hard during matches while uh, with Magnus's team, we have a, a somewhat different uh, strategy in terms of how to do these things. I think that's also true. Like when you look at Dubai, like I got the impression that, you know, the, the kind of the opening prep, let's say, maybe ended like way earlier than in some of the matches that I've been reading. You don't have, you didn't really have any, any games to my memory that got to, let's say, as far as I know, anyway, maybe, you know, I'm sure you know better than me, but uh, as far as I know, it didn't seem like, I mean, in the first game, I think basically after move eight or something, or right, Nepo was already out of, out of book, right? Like it is true to an extent. Uh, I forgot the actual numbers, but there was some, a couple of games rather early in the match where I think both of them were in preparation or, well, you can say outskirts of preparation. Again, it's also, well, what is preparation? That it's mentioned somewhere in your file. Is it that you, is the exact line you looked at 10 minutes before the game and such? I mean, there is a lot of general preparation and such, but that, um, well, there was a couple of games where the players only had to make one or two moves on their own. And then it more or less fizzled into a draw. But uh, you are right that we thought that this is not optimal for us and that we tried to change that. And, um, well, we changed it successfully in, the, in terms of that Magnus got to play some games. He didn't really get advantage, but managed to win anyway. And that's, um, well, that was to some extent our strategy. Of course, we would have preferred to get advantage, but um, if you can't get that, at least let's get a position and hope that our player is the better player, which we had good reason to hope. Now, I, I know you've done a lot of really amazing deep dives onto the Nepo match. There was this thing you did with Chess Base India um, right after the match. I remember, I know you've done something with Chess 24 now, you and the whole team kind of going through it. I haven't seen that yet, actually. Um, but I don't want to ask about the match that much. Uh, I more or less want to ask another question, which is, uh, you know, Magnus has said that he doesn't want to, uh, probably doesn't want to play the next match. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know if you... I've spoken to him about it at all, but uh, do you have any insight into this or is this something you kind of are just not going to address until after after the candidates? We can talk about it. I'm very open to talk about it or even written about it uh, online and such, but I don't have much to add in that uh, sense. That uh, I think Magnus is speaking his mind when he's giving interviews and that uh, his current status is that most likely he doesn't want to play and he's given his reasons for that in, in, in interviews and such. Right. And, uh, I mean, well, I think he honestly says what he thinks and he will make up his mind when it's time for that. But um, it's difficult to add much about it. It's possible to debate uh, why and if it's reasonable and so. But I mean, I don't think there is any kind of insight to, to add in the sense that, uh, well, my main info is uh, listening to the same interviews than you. I mean, well, of course, we have spoken about it and as uh, has been mentioned by, by numerous people, we knew about it in advance in the team that this was most likely going to be the last match, uh, not uh, depending on the result, but on a general decision. So, so it didn't come as a surprise to us. But, um, well, no, I can honestly say that I think he's telling what he thinks in interviews. And then, well, there's going to be a final decision at some point when it's time for that. But, um, well, if you have any questions, just feel free to ask them. But I don't think I can add anything sort of, you know, big revelation <laughs> insights because I don't have it.
Yeah, no, I imagine as much. And I, honestly, I mean, there's really, there's some other stuff I'd like to ask you later about, uh, let's say, um, this FIDE election that you're a part of with, uh, mm -hmm. I think, Andre Barjpolitz. And uh, uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of get to those. Uh, Go ahead. yeah, no, I mean, you're one of the more, well, I mean, you know this, you're definitely one of the more, let's say, outspoken, uh, anti, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of them, you know, pro-transparency, right? Um, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not mocking you. I, I think no, no, it's, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, I'm just quoting your, your Twitter bio. I yeah, really, yeah. why, what I'm asking is, you know, why, why did you join that, um, campaign? Because I think he's a, a good candidate that I would like to support. Uh, I think I have said in quite some people have asked me before if I wanted, if I was trying to join FIDE politics. And uh, I've always said no, because um, that was my honest answer. It's not something I particularly wanted to do. But when there is a candidate who stands more or less exactly for what you think is the right solution, and especially at a time where I think it's crucial that... Um, the chess world somehow makes up their mind how we want to deal with the Russian uh, political influence in the chess world. I thought when he asked me if I wanted to join his ticket, it would be very inconsequential of me not uh, joining it. I mean, uh, and such. So, well, it was more than, well, as actually a candidate, I really would like to support who was asking me to support him. And that's why I said uh, yes to, to him in that way. So, uh, I mean, well, that's the short answer. I, it's someone, well, it's not as much as you would like to join politics. It's more that I would really like this guy to win. So that's why I try to support him. Now, you, you mentioned that you, uh, you spoke to, to Vichy for a bit um, at Norway Chess because he's playing there. Uh, Vichy, mm -hmm. I think, made the controversial uh, decision by some to join uh, Dvorkovic's re-election campaign. I'm, I wonder kind of what you think about that. Um, well, I'm obviously not uh, well, happy about it in the sense that I, I think uh, differently politically and such. Uh, but, um, well, he's, he's uh, entitled to have his own opinion on how the chess world should be run. And in general, I'm very happy to see Vichy joining uh, chess uh, politics. He's a, he's a great guy and I think he will be a great uh, ambassador for chess uh, and so on. And it will be an asset to to any ticket in that way and such. But of course, uh, well, uh, I'm not happy that he's sort of aligning himself with what I consider the, the Kremlin uh, chess politics wise. But um, I mean, well, we we disagree on, on, on chess politics, it seems, but uh, well, it doesn't ruin that we have uh, had a lot of good works work years together and are generally friendly in that way. And uh, Magnus also doesn't uh, really interfere with this stuff that much, like I guess Kasparov did, let's say. No, that is that is true. Kasparov is a bit uh, special in, in, in that way. But, uh, well, Magnus is focusing on his uh, chess career, which is, is uh, quite uh, quite uh, reasonable, in, in my opinion. I think, um, well, as I said, I think the chess world really needs to, well, I think they should take a stand, but at least they should make up a principal decision if we find it acceptable to sort of uh, have as close relations to, to Russia uh, as, as we do. But I think this is not a, this is mainly a responsibility that lies with chess politicians rather than the chess players. I think, of course, chess players also has responsibilities, but it's especially politicians who has to take, uh, take action in, in that sense. So that Magnus doesn't have any kind of uh, firm uh, opinion, uh, at least I find quite uh, acceptable, if that's what you're asking.
Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I think the, the main thing to me is it seems to me like, let's say the last, I mean, time immemorial, how FIDE has operated. There's been a lot of corruption uh, and um, a lot of like, you know, a lot of money has come even in the last world championship. As you know, the sponsors have been like these oligarchic companies from Russia, most of them. Um, I don't know do if you, corruption is the right uh, word. I mean, in this case, well, I don't know, but there has been a history of corrupt behavior. Yeah, I don't think there has been a lot of proof, which is also when I keep talking about transparency that, um, well, the problem with the lack of transparency is it's extremely difficult to, to prove things. Well, people hear things and such, but there's a difference from having proof. And uh, if things are reasonably closed, it's very difficult. Well, there was this verification committee re report from 2019, for instance, who mentioned uh, uh, 120,000 euros in connection with uh, a sponsorship deal being transferred to a, 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 a let's say, a feeder official rather than a feeder. But, well, I think there is corruption, but um, to, I mean, to have actual proof of corruption is very difficult with the, the current structure. What we are, uh, me and Boris Politz is talking a lot about is also sports washing in the sense that, well, we have been using a lot of Russian companies who is uh, sponsoring or rather being donors in the chess world uh, and that we shouldn't associate ourselves with, with companies like that. These things might include a lot of corruption. For instance, if you look at the, the FIFA World Cup in 2018, which Dvokovic was the main organizer, there was has obviously been a lot of rumors and articles uh, and such about corruption there uh, and such. But, well, I think what me and Barish Polis is mainly talking about is that, well, there is very close links between, uh, well, Russia and Kremlin and the, the chess world in terms of sponsors and political contacts and so on and so forth. And that is something that the, the chess world can no longer uh, accept in, in our opinion. Yeah, that's you took the words out of my mouth because I was going to ask, you know, when you look at these companies like Gazprom, for example, and these other mm -hmm. companies, like, how do you see that revenue, let's say, getting replaced? That is a relevant uh, problem. And this is what uh, any um, feeder uh, leadership, being it us or being it Dvorkovic or being one of the, the other candidates will, will have to face. But uh, this is the reality, whoever becomes uh, the president. And, uh, well, we think that it's more likely to be replaced well if there is a candidate who doesn't have any connection with the Kremlin rather than one who has. I think that uh, the world, the reality is that there will be harsh sanctions on Russia and there's going to be harsh sanctions for a while, in my opinion, for good reasons. And that, uh, well, the chess world, the reality is that we have to get used to uh, not having uh, Russian money in the chess world. Um, and there is numerous possibilities. Again, there is no transparency, so I cannot talk about the, the details of uh, the current deals because I don't know them. But for instance, uh, chess.com is having sponsorship. So it's uh, uh, chessable and such. I mean, there is uh, possibilities like, like that. And uh, well, we are rather optimistic in terms of that. But of course, uh, because the chess world, especially feed has been so connected to Russian money. I think Dvorkovic mentioned the figures that at some point it was 95%, maybe then it was down to 80%. And there has to be a transformation out of that. But, um, well, that is not a problem that only we will face. We will, uh, that will be faced, have to, everybody have to face. But of course, uh, well, that is uh, something that has to be solved. But we think also that on a long term, it is healthy for the chess world not to be heavily dependent on the politically based sponsorship 
it should more rather be commercially based uh, sponsorship. We think chess has an excellent image that has improved recently for a number of reasons, and that uh, well, there is hope that this will you know be good in a long term strategy for us. But we think especially raising the image of the leadership will be important, and having a leadership that's not connected to Kremlin will also make it easier to get uh, sort of sponsorships, especially in the long term. 100% agree. You see, the thing is, I'm a pretty poor chess player. I don't know. I don't think I can vote as a, you know, FIDE member or whatever, but I'm, I'm, I'm behind this campaign 100%. Thanks a lot. You know, um, yeah, I think actually that, well, the elections are basically that each country has one vote and the, each country choose their delegate, very typically the president of the federation. So it's actually going to be, well, around 200 people who's going to decide how this is going to gonna unfold but uh, well we will see how it goes but it's always well it's always nice for a candidate to to be able to talk and in that way get to put out your views and also well advertise your campaign to some extent but uh but fide elections are not exactly considered let's say uh, free and fair elections um yeah i i agree with that point of view it's very hard to prove because um again it's very closed of course you hear numerous uh, things historically and such. But uh, well, basically it is each country chooses a delegate who then chooses to, to vote for something like that. But of course, in, well, in previous elections, we have heard numerous rumors. A lot of things has been public. For instance, uh, in the previous elections, the, the Russian embassies has been quite active. Even in the last election, uh, Putin was um, directly advocating Vodkovic to Netanyahu during a a visit, a state visit in Israel and such. So, of course, there is things like that. And it also gives away that, well, it really matters to Russia. They put in a lot of uh, prestige and resources when uh, it's, well, not embassy level, but even higher than that, uh, the actual leader himself. So, well, of course, it matters more there. While, for instance, me and Boris Pollitz are really not supported by <laughs> anything in that sense. But um, we are hoping that the delegates will, will listen to us and sort of try to figure out which way they think the chess watch should be going. That 100%. Now, another thing I wanted to, to ask you, I know you're, you're a basketball connoisseur, you're a sports connoisseur. I know you have a, you know, fantasy, fantasy football, EPL. Yeah, um, have you ever been compared to the, like, let's say Phil Jackson of chess or Greg Popovich of chess? No, not, not at all. I would say. Uh, also, well, my basketball knowledge is more limited than in other sports. I mean, this has only been the, like the last three, four years I follow it. And to quite some extent, I follow it due to my work uh, that uh, Magnus is interested in basketball. And um, while, of course, we talk a lot about chess, we also have to talk about something else. And basketball, um, in that sense, uh, is his interest and also has become mine. I actually care more about, let's say, statistics and how basketball is understood and even how AI is used in basketball to understand it better and such. I don't have that good a grasp of the history and such. Also, you're talking, uh, comparing me to other coaches, but these coaches are for teams, while I'm a coach for individuals. And I think it's very, very different uh, qualities. Uh, and sort of expectations there are for coaching in these things. But maybe that's something you want to ask about specifically. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask next. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, well, you're coaching basically the greatest chess player ever. Um, I guess like what, the average day in a life, I have a pretty good sense of because I've read a ton on this stuff. I like to think I'm pretty well prepared, but maybe for some of our listeners who are newer to uh, 
newer to the chess culture, let's say, what what does the average day in the life look like when you're working with Magnus? There is no such thing. Um, there is maybe average days during tournaments, but uh, I don't know sure. how many games he plays a day, a year. Maybe he plays 50 or 70 and such. So, well, for instance, here in Stavanger, um, well, I get up uh, quite early in the morning and then... Well, usually the evening before, we have debated uh, what should sort of the strategy be for today's game. Maybe at night, I left the computer to sort of analyze certain positions that's relevant. But then, uh, well, let's say from early morning until a deadline some hours before the game, I work on several chess-based files to sort of describe the preparation in, in details. I try to highlight, okay, I think this is important. This is more unlikely, but at least you should know it and such. So that Magnus has um, some files that he can read and get a better idea of, uh, well, what is the important things in preparation and such. So that, of course, I spent quite some time, but also, well, for instance, during that time today, we had time to have lunch together and such. Then before the games, I typically have a couple of hours free because uh, well, I sent the files to Magnus already, so I'm relaxing there. Then maybe half an hour before the game, I would uh, you know, go to his room, and we will walk together to the round or walk to the car and drive together. Sometimes in the car, we will talk about chess. Uh, he might have a question to preparation. Other time, we will just talk about basketball or foot football. Or sometimes he wants to me to leave him alone, so I'll do that. But I'm basically available. And then, uh, well, then again, we will meet after the game. I will have looked a little bit at the computer. I will try to have some input about what was good, but what, what wasn't. And uh, then there will be dinner, some social activities. And then again, we will start debating what's going to happen tomorrow opening-wise, and he will brief me on what the ideas are. But I think the by far biggest difference from uh, you describing basketball coaches is that um, in a basketball team, the coach is probably the one who has the final say and who makes the strategical decisions. While I'm helping an individual, it's obviously Magnus who decides on the strategy, and I try to help him implement it, especially opening-wise. So I think there is a considerable difference there. And I think that goes for all kinds of sporting, uh, individual sports. That uh, there, it's the individual player who is the expert. And you have a coach who is trying to help him. Rather than in, let's say, basketball or football, the coach actually has much more responsibility in terms of having the final say and so on. So, uh, I mean, my role is not necessarily to have strong opinions. Rather, it is to help Magnus implement his strategy, I would say. Um, now, here's a really stupid question. When you're, let's say, in the car with Magnus, um, are you speaking in English or are you speaking like Danish and he speaks back to you in Norwegian? It's a very typical uh, question. Um, when at tournaments, when it's only me, Magnus, and his dad, for instance, we speak uh, our native languages, means I speak Danish, he speaks Norwegian. That works um, very well for us. Um, with other Norwegians, I might actually speak English. But um, I think especially because we, we quite often talk about chess, I think it, it works well for us in, 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 the, in, in Danish Norwegian. But for us, that's completely natural. But for instance, at camps, we would switch to English, and that works very well between us as well. But um, for us, it feels natural to talk um, Danish plus Norwegian without any kind of problems. So uh, our languages are very similar, and um, that just works for us. So... Well, if you will suddenly see us in the street, we will talk Danish last Norwegian without any kind of problems. Now, um, he was recently in Denmark, too, for this uh, Chess Bowl Masters thing. I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Was that uh? Did you have any any uh, say and advice about Denmark, or did you just pick? Uh, why did he pick Denmark? Well, not this time. He picked it because well, two years ago we had the same thing that during online tournaments he thought, okay, well, it's nice to play from home in many ways, but also it doesn't become t- tournament atmosphere. You live in your usual flat, you eat the usual places, you hang out with your friends afterwards and such. Um, that is extremely convenient, but somehow maybe lacks a bit of the tournament atmosphere. So, and that was during the pandemic times in 2020. He thought, let's go somewhere else and try to just have a normal tournament atmosphere. But during the pandemic, there was not that many options. And then, well, it has to be a, um, you know, a country that wasn't that far away. B, we both have to be able to get in there and uh, their restriction had to be at a, at a certain thing. And then we just, well, he thought that, well, why don't we just go to Denmark? Uh, that seems to, to work quite well. And um, yeah, then he, he did that twice in 2020. He won both the events and then somehow you have good memories, you go back there. And um, so that was quite convenient. Also, well, the tournament was finishing only a few days before this event in Stavanger. So it was also important that traveling was not uh, too big. Well, unfortunately, he lost the semifinal to Dingley Ren. So there was a couple of days extra for for um, for traveling, but that was not the plan when we sort of made the plan, I can say. So, you know, but uh, no, it was, I think also we think it's a bit funny that I, I get to go to my home country, but I think mainly the reasons were very practical. Yeah, how often do you go to Denmark these days? Because I know you live in Lithuania. Yeah, um, not that often in the sense that, well, I have... Uh, Two, two kids at uh, seven and four. And uh, my wife, uh, former chess player, but now uh, a high-ranked politician in, in, in Lithuania, has a, a busy job. So when I don't travel with Magnus, which I do quite a lot, it's difficult to justify going to Denmark very often because I had to sort of uh, take uh, help with kids as well, obviously. But uh, so my main trips to Denmark has nothing to do with chess. It's taking my kids to meet their grandmother and such. For instance, in, in April, I was in Denmark, but uh, we were heading for Legoland primarily <laughs> and such. And uh, I think, um, well, I mean, don't think of me as a chess player. I think more as a, as a dad, that when my kids has holidays from school, we will go to Denmark and visit the grandparents and stuff like that. Uh, so in that sense, not as often as I would like, and uh, but uh, maybe like three, four times a year, maybe five times a year. So Magnus going to Denmark, of course, for me was very nice. I I borrowed a car from a friend. I get to visit my mother and such. So well, it feels like home in, in many ways. Well, it used to be. So I still haven't been to Legoland. I've been here for nine months. I'm only here for another well, month. Well, my 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 son is seven. Uh, I, you are definitely younger than me, but you're quite older than my sons. So I'm not sure Legoland will be that great an experience. Actually, I think when we played European Junior Championship. Uh, which I'm afraid has been 29 years ago because I'm 49 uh, years now. Then we went, all the junior players went to Legoland. And I think the conclusion was when you're 20, Legoland is not that funny. <laughs> I think it's funny when you're seven and when you're 49 and bring your kid, it's also extremely funny. But, uh, well, for someone your age, maybe Copenhagen has better offers than uh, you traveling to, to Legoland. But of course, Legoland is a part of Denmark and you should see it at some point. So well, That's how I feel. I also, exactly. because... When I was really young, I had a book because I was obsessed with Lego as a kid. And I had this book about the history of Lego. And of course, oh, Lego is cool. a Danish brand. And I remember seeing the pictures of like Legoland and Billund and the uh-huh. um, the Legoland driving school 
And we yeah, didn't yeah, have yeah, that my, in American ones. And I remember telling course. my... Yeah. No, no, my son got a... He, he passed his exam. Well, passed his exam is too strong. Every kid passed the exam. But I have a picture where he's going directly in the opposite direction. So, I mean, <laughs> they seem to be kind of friendly. But no, no this is... No, also, Legoland is in, very enjoyable uh, and such. I, I, I mean... I had a lot of fun. Uh, there's no doubt about that. So please, please go there. Also, it's beautiful to see and such. So uh, it's very hard to get there from Copenhagen. Yeah, it is. Well, you can take a train to to Weile and then take a bus from there. But uh, strangely enough, um, it's probably easier to get there from Vilnius because uh, there is uh, a couple of direct flights to Billund Airport, which is like two kilometers from there. So you're you're right that from Copenhagen, it's not that trivial. But uh, I'm sure you'll find a way. Yeah. It's just, I remember being like seven years old and telling my mom, like, I want to go to Denmark to go to Legoland. And I remember like, yeah. she, she just laughed at me and then uh, guess who's in Denmark now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, of course. Then, uh, no way around it. Yep. Yep. Um, would you rather be remembered as a, uh, you know, as a, as a chess coach or as a podcaster? <laughs> well, I'm glad that uh, these are the two options. Uh, I thought you will ask me. I want to be remembered as a player, as a coach, and then it's clearly as a coach, as a podcaster. Well, uh, tough to say, right? Yeah, of course, it would be great if that career took off. But no, um, I'm definitely identifying myself as a coach. And um, I haven't played a chess tournament in now eight and a half years. And um, the honest answer is I don't really particularly miss it. I think um, I... I love the job I have. It's uh, very interesting. And uh, I really like analyzing chess openings probably more than I like uh, playing chess. So for me, this is really the way it is. So, um, well, I think um, the reasonable thing would be to remember me for being a, a chess coach. But of course, if, uh, if the podcast takes off, well, who knows? But no, I think the serious answer will still have to be chess coach. You don't find, uh, you don't find chess podcasting to be highly lucrative? It's a real business here. Uh, I don't know. For me so far, it's fun. I mean, it's also that, uh, well, you see us uh, chess seconds, we spend a bunch of time together. I mean, up before a world championship match, but then suddenly we barely see each other for, for a long time. And so, for instance, the Anand team, well, you, you showed the, the book to me that you have it there, the Anand files. I think I calculated. I have spent more than a year together with them in training camps or at world championship matches. But then suddenly it's over. And we barely see each other. So it's nice to have a way to, to be in touch. And I, for me, I mean, the podcast is uh, at the moment uh, almost a social thing where you get to hang out with your friends and talk about the chess world. But somehow, well, no, of course, we could just all log on to Skype and do the same. But that would feel a bit weird, right? So somehow recording it at least puts a bit of pressure and makes it a bit fun in a way. So at the moment, that's the current status. But of course, uh, well, everybody who's podcasting is hoping that it uh, becomes very popular. But we will, we will still have to see if that's the case. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's from my experience highly lucrative. I make tens of thousands of dollars an episode. You know, one of the most popular shows on the planet, actually. Um, chess podcast, no big deal. Uh, but maybe you'll get there someday. We'll do our best. Yeah. Yeah. Why did I mean? Was it your idea to start the podcast? No, not really. I mean, uh, I think it was mainly Jan Gustafsson who came up with the idea. And I thought, yeah, why not uh, in that sense? So uh, I, I wouldn't say that. But um, uh, no, uh, but I, I was into it immediately, I would say. sort of. But again, mainly because, uh, well, um, yeah, as I said, it is a strange job we have in the, in the way that we spend a bunch of time together and suddenly it finishes. So, I mean, also this DVD series, 
which not well DVD. That's an old world. Now it's called video series, right? For 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 Chess Twenty Four, the matches for our purposes, it's very much a, a social thing where we get together and debate the match afterwards and such. And then, well, it makes sense to put it on video so that uh, well, there is someone financing it, and people can get to listen to it and, and watch it if they find it interesting and such. So. We're trying to combine sort of um, social activities, but actually having some kind of product in the end. Yeah, well, the podcast is, is incredible. I mean, I tweeted something about like, let's say three weeks ago, where I was just like playing World of Warcraft and I binged all the episodes that were out at the time. I think it was four episodes at the time. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah, very, yeah. very entertaining. Uh, you know, Jan yeah. is a king of banter, as uh, you know, I'm sure better than I know. Anybody. I know. I think I had a friend who once told me that, uh, how do you get any work done with Jan? You will just... You would just sit down and laugh all the time. And well, I think he's funny, but not that funny. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that, his role is like that at least. So then we, you will have me complaining about feeder and such. <laughs> we all have our parts, right? So. Yeah, and Loren too is also hilarious. I don't really know yeah, much yeah. about Loren, but he's very funny. Good, good. Yeah. Well, to me, yeah. he's mainly French. But uh, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Another thing I want to, I guess, is just to get your thoughts on is the candidates itself, because I'm mm -hmm. sure you're kind of paying attention to the candidates. I mean, you never know, right? Like if Magnus maybe does play, no, you have to pay attention. I will say that I'm paying less to the candidates, attention to the candidates than I have done in a really, really long time. Um, I cannot remember. Maybe, well, it is, I started maybe working for Vichy, well, for real in 2005 when he had to play the world championship, which was a tournament that then became the candidates. But since then, of course, it has been a huge focal point for me. This time, I'm assuming Magnus is not going to defend his title. So I care comparatively less. I mean, before, of course, it was extremely important for me. Who is it? Who is we going to prepare a world championship match for? How are the opening developments and such? This time, at least partially, I will look at it as, as a fan, which is a very nice change from sort of having to, to care a lot about it. But of course, um, my professional interest is mainly the openings and uh, while Magnus might not have to play the winner in a world championship match openings are still very important so I'm very curious about the the, the developments and the trends in the tournament and such and uh, well you know in other tournaments people might experience uh, experiment while in the candidates is where things really are at stake that where you get you you can feel sure that people will play the openings they think are the best and so on so and uh, they will try to have prepared for really a long time you can see well, a few of them are playing here in uh, in Stavanger, but most of them is having a break, and of course are having training camps. Uh, they build teams. They have advanced computers and such. It's very interesting for me, of course, to see which kind of ideas will they bring. How are they compared to what we prepared for the world champion, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, this um, I'm really looking forward to. There's no doubt about that. But of course, I also look forward to it as a chess competition because. Uh, but I think it's going to be very interesting who will uh, win it and uh, get at least the right to challenge Carlson. We'll see if Carlson accepts the challenge or not. But uh, no, I think we're looking forward to a very exciting tournament. Uh, but uh, well, I'm just saying that I look forward to it for a number of reasons. Let's say as, as a fan, is there anyone that you are, I, I know, you know, emotionally you can't like support or root for someone, but is there any, is there any, like, uh, I, I don't want to ask you necessarily who you think is a favorite, let's say, because you know, it's, I think it's tough to say, at least for me. Um, but is there any, like, I guess, narrative or person that you're kind of like hoping has a, has a good showing? Well, it's actually easier for me to ask, answer who I think is the favorite than to say who I'm hoping for, because well, they're all uh, more or less good friends and uh, at least good colleagues. And, well, for them, it's, 
well, you know, winning the candidates is close to life changing in the sense that suddenly you have a world championship match, which has, well, it's a big payday for a start. It gives you a chance to be part of history and so on. So, well, I will be happy for whoever wins in that sense. And there is a lot, well, you know them as persons. So whoever wins, you will be happy for uh, in that way. Typically, of course, um, if you think that it's going to be Magnus's next opponent, well, you will root a bit for this guy instead of that guy because you think maybe that will be easier for Magnus's opponent. I think when I worked for Vichy, at some point I was hoping against Kramnik, not because uh, I didn't think Vichy could beat Kramnik, because, but I knew that Kramnik is extremely well prepared and that will make my job very difficult in a way. But uh, for these candidates... I'll be happy whoever wins, I would say. Um, in terms of favorite, I'm rating Ding and Caruana as the favorites. Then I have uh, Firusha as the outsider. And the rest, I would be very surprised if one, if one but of course it could happen in, in a way. But uh, on, on the other hand, you can argue that is probably what I predicted before the last candidates, that I thought also Ding and Caruana was uh, the favorites and the rest would be very surprising to me. And uh, well, one of the surprises actually turned out to win uh, in a way. But, um, well, it seems like I don't learn from my mistakes, so I'm going to say Ding and Kawana much more. Yeah, but I mean, last time we also had the, you know, we had basically a wild horse enter an MVL out of nowhere, and then the, also pandemic happened as well, which gave a whole year. It was a very strange track. situation, obviously, and such. Right. Uh, but to be fair, I mean, Yepomiachi played um, convincingly over over two events and, and such, and was was justified that he, that he won. And... Uh, while, of course, the World Championship didn't really turn out the way he, he hoped to. I mean, World Championship matches hangs on, on sort of small margins. And, uh, well, for five and a half game, he was doing pretty well and keeping Magnus sort of uh, stuck in a, in, a, in a tense situation and suddenly it collapsed. And, uh, well, sports are like that. You're talking about basketball. You see some of these, um, you know, series where teams play seven times against each other and one game, they, one team is getting completely crushed, and two days later, the other team is being completely crushed, and you wonder, how can this happen? But this is how sport is, and so is chess in a way. But, uh, well, Nepomniachi, of course, also has uh, chances and such, but uh, I don't rank him around the, the favorites, neither does the, the ratings. Right. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting, though, for sure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. This is really the second candidates that I've ever really followed, and I think I'm a... Mm -hmm. more uh, well-versed in chess than I was a year ago, let's say. Um, <laughs> and I'll be doing some some candidate stuff on the podcast, by the way. Uh, for those of you who are interested, I'll be doing probably some streams and YouTube of stuff and whatever. So definitely check that out. Uh, last thing I want to ask you, uh, since I know you're busy, they've made a total of two moves uh, or three moves since, uh, since we started recording. Although Magnus is apparently better. Yeah, uh, either they are thinking a lot or... Uh, my coverage is down. The last move is night E to C5, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I only have the computer of the um, uh, the Chess24 site in front of me at the moment. So I, I don't have, but that is claiming White has some kind of considerable uh, advantage, at least, which is, is promising. Also, if you look at the clock times, Radyabov has spent much more time than uh, Magnus. And uh, while, for instance, Norwegian television often ask me so i was still in preparation and i say well i can't answer that question but have a look at the clock times that's a pretty good indicator <laughs> in, in a way um and such but well magnus is, is thinking now but the computer says that his position is rather promising so that is good news if if, if so i mean that would be great of course um, it's not like two draws is a bad result but 
well, you know, when you are Magnus's coach, you get spoiled and you start thinking that uh, an, an average result is not that good because he, he's a brilliant player. But uh, well, I hope the best, but let's see how, how it develops and such. But uh, well, it's a typical position where Magnus has an extra pawn. And uh, let's say in, in, I would say in the old days, Black would not dare to play such because we would think that White just has a, a free role and good chances to win. While with modern computers, sometimes they give basically the position as a dead draw despite being an extra pawn. And um, well, that is sort of modern computers has, has had a change in, in, in these things, I would say. Uh, and for instance, this line they are playing was something that before the World Championship, well, we were aiming in this direction, but this B5 move was only sort of catching on in the months up to the match. And I think a very interesting thing is that... Um, well, if you go back to the Anand times that we debated, these matches would typically be that we tried extremely hard to find big novelties that even maybe it was just novelties in terms of um, the opening position, but even trying to invent some new system that typically was underrated, but we would sort of uh, make them playable again. While, for instance, in the in the previous match with, with Nepomniachi, Nepomniachi was just playing the current trends. He was not really coming with you know new systems or big novelties but he was basically trusting that uh, well i've analyzed this these are good moves and there's not much you can do about it and uh, i think that's a considerable difference that uh, these days as i said opening analysis is getting such a good quality that uh, people doesn't seem to care that much about surprising anymore they simply think that there's nothing you can do well you can say for instance you have seen that in, in, in matches and candidates tournaments, people will just play the Berlin, they will play the main lines, and there's nothing White really can do about it. And uh, that is a considerable change to, I would say, 10, 15 years ago. Right. I mean, you famously shocked uh, Kramnik with 1d4, right? Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, again, to add a lot of surprise. And, uh, well, it turned out uh, okay, or actually quite successfully and such. But, of course, um, I mean... Well, these things can also go wrong. Sometimes, uh, well, people look unfamiliar with it and such. But I guess in, well, Leko also started playing D4 again, instead of E4 against Kramnik, and that worked quite well for him and such. So for some, it has quite worked. But um, for Vichy, it was mainly an emotional decision. And I think also the, the interesting part, perhaps, was that um, it was basically an emotional decision he took on his own. It's not like we sat down, we had a week where we debated back and forth. I think basically Vichy just said, I don't want to play Berlin. I don't want to play Petrov. Uh, I'm actually going to play D4. Maybe they also have a lot of boring lines, but at least for me, they will feel a bit more fresh in a way. And uh, I mean, that's maybe also a difference between, let's say, teaching a, coaching a basketball team and coaching a, a chess player. When Vichy takes a decision like that, well, that's the end of the discussion. I mean... Well, I can maybe think it's a good idea. I can think it's a bad idea, but it doesn't really matter. If Vichy has decided that's how it is, you do your best to support that point of view. But analyze is not that you start telling him, no, no, I think you should play E4. It's, it's stupid to play D4. I mean, that's not how it works. And also, well, you can do these things, but maybe then, well, you don't have the job as, as long as you, <laughs> you would have else, right? So, yeah. Now, is your love for, for Alpha Zero um, just, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, the machines will take over and Alpha Zero will, will put us all out of uh, out of jobs as chess players? Uh, I don't think so, but, um, well, it's a typical uh, thing, right? I mean, I think also, was it 
Cabablanca who said that well, the Queen's Gambit is just uh, killing the game and such. And uh, <laughs> well, I think when you get to high level, you just end up thinking uh, like that that there is it's just completely hopeless. I think the interesting thing for me is that um, before Alpha Zero, I really thought that uh, it's simply impossible that we get to a much higher level of understanding chess than we are currently and such. I thought that Stockfish in, in, in 2018, or was it 17, I forgot, was just, uh, well, incredibly strong. And uh, uh, that suddenly seeing Alpha Zero beating it heavily was extremely shocking to me if I sort of uh, did, hadn't seen it happen. I would think it's completely impossible. And of course, the relevant question is, um, will something like that happen again? That are we at the sort of end stage of evolution that nothing else is going to be discovered or is there actually still um, possibilities? I would be very surprised if uh, suddenly some new chess openings materializes that we haven't thought about before. But uh, I mean, well, these things happen. I mean, it's not like the Berlin didn't exist before Kramnik uh, started playing it. But it wasn't taken seriously as enough. And you can also see that uh, there is a current trend in the semitaras uh, that's played on high level, some kind of ending where white gets the pair of bishop, black gets an isolated pawn. And if you go back 10, 15 years, we would have laughed at it. Nowadays, it's just the main line and black is doing quite well and such. And this, I think, is heavily due to influence of modern engines and such. But um, uh, I don't know. I'm also a bit nervous or puzzled about how is chess going to be played in 30 years. But, uh, well, historically, people have been able to reinvent themselves. But I think players like Magnus, for instance, has a point that uh, oh, we need to play with the quicker time controls. Maybe we need to play 960. Maybe we have to do certain tricks like they're doing computer tournaments and and, uh, and not just play from the starting position, but play certain openings and such. But uh, I think these thoughts has always been there in history that, you know, chess is dying, it's too dry and so on and so forth and then suddenly it's not anymore so well i think everyone you talk with will always think that you know ah we are now at the, the end of of sort of uh, what is left to discover but uh, it has not not been the case till till now and just because guys like me are using our old methods doesn't mean that there will not be some guys using new and better methods who will find new ideas so probably it's, it's stupid to be pessimistic but um well, i am at times I don't know if that answered your question. Or no, that definitely answered. I was kind of being sarcastic about the little bit. I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think uh, Engine is going to solve chess anytime in the future, but. Solving is too strong, but of course they are incredibly good. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but we also see, I mean, you've seen last year, plenty of crazy blunders in classical chess uh, from yeah, really good sure. players. So I don't think chess is going anywhere. You know, human psychology is really what, what dictates chess at the end of the day, right? No, and, and I mean, chess is perhaps becoming more of a sport in a way, which I think generally is good, right? I mean, uh, well, I don't think World Championship matches should be decided by who prepares best for half a year. Of course, for me, it's quite good because that's how I, I make a living. But, uh, well, chess is primarily a sport. And it's a pity if you just see people comparing opening notes and such. And, uh, well, that was actually our strategy with Magnus in the last World Championship match. We tried to do our best to play not necessarily crazy stuff, but somewhat surprising stuff. And, um, well, to play something surprising, you are kind of forced to slightly compromise on, on quality, right? Um, so 
I mean, no, I, I'm curious. And of course, when you look at the younger generation, like uh, Ali Reza and such, I mean, some of them play very aggressive chess in, in a fun way. And um, for us older guys, it might look um, overly aggressive and strange. But, well, that's how it is being old. You will always be conservative to what the new guys do. <laughs> yeah. Let's say I'll, I'll ask three more questions. Um, first thing, you know, you've been working with Magnus, let's say, for something like a decade, almost a decade. What's been the most surprising thing for you about Magnus Carlsen? The most surprising thing? Yeah. I think, to be honest, the most surprising thing is that he got that good. I mean, well, I've known him for 20 years. When I started working for him professionally, of course, he was the best player in the world. But um, You knew him back when he was a little little Norwegian boy. Yeah, and... basically. I don't know if he was 11 or 12. But I think, uh, well, the anecdote is at least the first time I saw him was when he played a tournament in Norway. And... Uh, well, everybody said he was a big deal. And I think I went to look at his games and I thought, okay, this guy, he knows a lot of opening theory, but he's not that good at playing chess. And, uh, well, that is um, as far from uh, how things turns out that it could be, right? But, um, I mean, no, you should understand. It's someone I, I got friendly with when he was 12 or 13 years old and such. And, of course, he was talented. But this idea that um, in Scandinavia, suddenly we would have a world champion, but it didn't find uh, realistic to me in a way. Why would it be? I mean, we never had before. Um, I mean, they are much stronger in other countries. They have more people and so on. So I think uh, I didn't expect it to turn out like that. So I think the, the biggest surprise for me is that, uh, you know, well, this small kid you thought was a, quite a talented player suddenly actually turned out to be, well, if not the best ever, then at least in the debate for being the best ever and um, so on. But of course... Uh, well, there's been a bunch of surprises along the way, but uh, well, that's a different story. I guess that's like Jantelo also, right? I know you have it in Denmark and Norway, too, right? Like, like uh, to be to be humble, and I mean, it's the same thing with let's say soccer and tennis, right? Because you have like Kasper Ruud and and uh, yeah. Well, there's they had uh, who's the, the Danish guy? I'm forgetting his name now. Also Holger Luna. Yeah, yeah Holger Luna. Played yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was gonna mention that. Because people were criticizing him in Denmark, saying, "Oh, he's he's playing. Uh, you know, he's he's such a." Uh, bad sport and all this. Yeah, he didn't make, I mean, well, I think for context, uh, these two guys we mentioned, the Norwegian and the Dane, they played in the quarterfinals of the French Open yesterday. And, uh, well, at least from my perspective, sadly the Norwegian won. But the, the Norwegian is, is quite a gentleman, while the Dane, ah, he was uh, shouting a lot, complaining about the referee, uh, telling someone from his family to leave and stuff like that. And, uh, well, he's 19, so he's quite young and such. And you are right that uh, such behavior, to quite some extent, is thrown about in, in Scandinavia. But, um, well, there is also an argument for maybe that's how you become that that good to, to some extent. And, uh, well, I think Magnus is generally a, a quite sympathetic and understanding person. But, of course, if you have to be that good, you should be allowed to be quite egoistic. And I actually have to say that, quite a difference from being a chess player to being a coach is that uh, it takes time to get used to that as a player. Well, you have every right to be egoistic because, well, you're at a tournament, your performance is what matters and such. While a coach, you suddenly have to pay a lot of attention to another person's need and such. And, uh, well, that that took some while to get used to. Maybe I'm not that used to it uh, yet in a way, but uh, there's a huge difference there, obviously, and such. But, um, yeah, again, now I forgot your question. Well, yeah, I wanted to just move. I was making a comment about, you know, the Scandinavian culture, I guess. Yeah, yeah, from, fair enough. Um, let's say two more. 
this is something I was just wondering. I'm not sure that this was maybe maybe I'm just insane and it's been a while since I watched the Chess Base India video, but um, famous game six, you know, probably mm -hmm. probably Magnus's, you know, that's going to be one of the greatest games in history, right? At what point um, was there a specific? I don't know if you remember move by move. Of course, this is really I remember game. it very well. Yeah. yeah, but do you remember the exact move um, where you said, "Okay, Magnus is going to win this." There was a lot of these. I mean, uh, but also, I think it's one of his best games. But I have said that I think it's one of his best games as a sports person from a pure chess context. It might not be that well. But uh, there's a double blunder moment. in the middle, right? Before time control. Well, there was several blunders. You said, I mean, maybe at move, I cannot remember the exact move, but let's say move 28. I think, ah, oh, Magnus is winning. Then move 30. Actually, now he's losing. Then move 39. I think, ah, oh, now he's winning easily. Then move 40. Okay, now it's a draw. Then again, move 80. I think he's going to win. Move 85. No, now it's going to be a draw. Move 100, it's going to be a draw. And then move 120, actually, maybe now he wins. And 125, and now he's actually winning. You see, it swings back and forth. But what was very impressive was, I mean, well, he kept trying and such. And he kept putting pressure. And he wasn't rewarded for it because Nipongachi uh, defended actually very brilliantly for a very, very long time. And, um, well, what impresses me most as a coach would be that I mean, had it been me who was the player, I would have said, sure. Okay, this, I mean, I tried so hard for seven hours. Now it's going to be a draw. But Magnus kept trying. I mean, he must have been extremely tired. He must also have been hungry and such. So, I mean, uh, well, he was about midnight at the time. He had every right not to try anymore, but he kept pushing. And in the end, Nepal actually crashed. And of course, that had a huge influence on what happened next in the match. Right. So, so uh, I mean, from a chess perspective, it was a cool game. But mainly, it was a great battle. I mean, it's like a good football game, a basketball game. It's not only that one has superior um, uh, quality. It's more the back and forth things and the fighting and such. And there is great moments. There is bad moments. And then, no, this was a purely sporting performance. Also, of course, we prepared a lot for this game opening-wise. But the opening basically didn't matter. It was only the starting ground for having a, a very interesting chess game and such. So, and of course, for me as a coach, it was extremely memorable. I mean... Uh, I remember starting, I mean, I was waiting to pick him up after the game, but actually I went uh, maybe one and a half hour earlier because I somehow thought now the game is going to be a draw. So I remember walking around in a, in a parking lot in, in Dubai, you know, crossing, <laughs> crossing midnight, looking at my phone and suddenly being quite excited that actually something big is, might, might be happening now and such. And uh, no, this was, uh, I mean, this is the kind of memories you have as a coach that you're never going to forget uh, in a way. So this was... Uh, but uh, no, this was extremely impressive by Magnus, but especially as a sports person. Yeah, I mean, if you go on Lee Chess and you 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 know you hit uh, computer analysis and you see the spikes, you say, "Oh, look at these!" It, yeah. it, it's really something you can only like. I guess in the age of engines, that people will not appreciate it. They look at it from stock. You have to look at it, like you said, from the sport perspective because it was so spectacular to actually watch, like the. And every also minute. the prop. The problem with engines is that they will say what's right or wrong but they will not grasp the complexity of it to, to that extent and such and the, well they cannot tell the difference if between you know the white has 10 moves that makes a draw or it's only one one move it doesn't grasp such and uh, i mean no magnus did it really really well and nepomiachi did it really really well as as well and then he cracked in the end because magnus kept putting pressure and pressure but uh, 
no, this is obviously it's the longest game in, in a World Championship history, but it's also one of the most uh, exciting in, in a way, of course. And I think even, well, Nepomniachtchi lost the game and the match, but he also had a lot of honor from this game because by, I think more or less everybody else, maybe exclude one or two players, would have cracked much, much earlier. And such. So this was, uh, it's a great game. And also I think you're talking about this video series. I think we're talking one and a half hour about that game. This is quite quite insane, right? But the, there's just so much content in the game and so many emotions and such. So, uh, oh, this was, uh, yeah, I'm not going to forget that. Yeah, it's amazing. Really amazing. I, I mean, just, just say, you know, when my friends who are not chess players are sending me pictures or, or news articles about this saying well, what happened yeah yeah today? No, of course that's like it I mean, was like a human achievement almost yeah yeah i mean but exactly i mean there i think um the actual chess content was not that exciting but it was a huge sporting thing and that's actually cool right i mean it's also some football games or basketball games the expert will appreciate but there will also be games that everybody will appreciate right because, and they don't necessarily need to understand chess and this is what happened here so that was uh, Oh, that was something special. What can I say? Yeah, you see it trending like number one on Twitter the next morning. Yeah, exactly, it's just like you know, and that that's really that tells you. Um, there's one more question I want to ask you before we go, but the one thing that I why I really want to see a change with FIDE is because I get the suspicion that a lot of people, um, they don't believe in the power of chess as a marketable thing. Really, they say, oh, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, we'll get the same sponsors, and you know, it's it's this game for you know real chess players, you know, and. Uh, but I think that there's so many people who, who would love to get into this game as a sport if they could. And that's really what I want to see in the next generation do is grow the game really as a sport. Yeah, I mean, well, I said I didn't believe in Magnus becoming the world best player, but he did. I can similarly say I never would have believed that chess would uh, make it to television in, uh, in Scandinavia especially. I mean, normally when you put on chess, no one would watch it. Um, that I actually would have to, well, a small part, but still have a part in chess where I think a million Norwegians would watch chess on a weekday around midnight. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that was how it was. When Magnus had a playoff against Kayakin, they say around a, a, a million Norwegians stayed up just to watch that. I mean, well, we're used to, well, if a thousand people would care about chess in Denmark, we would be very happy that it became such a public sport and that now, even during Stavanger, or even during his online tournaments, uh, a television channel will actually have a live studio with uh, a ho professional host. They'll have experts and things like this talking about chess all the time. I would not have believed it if I haven't seen it and such. And uh, of course, um, a lot of people made it uh, possible, but um, without Magnus, it wouldn't have happened. And uh, no, that, that is amazing. Of course, you can argue, well, Magnus will not be here forever. Will it happen after that? But of course, uh, with Magnus and with, you know, a lot of possibilities comes along and it's about to to grab them and try to build something for the future and such. But uh, chess on television, uh, it, it's insane. This is, I mean, when, when I grew up, I mean, no one was debating that. Maybe in Russia, but not uh, in other parts of the world and such. And that uh, this is just a reality in Norway, like uh, it has been there all the time. It's, it's just, uh, it's puzzling in a way, but, uh, but great. Yeah, I visited the Champions Chess Studio um, last Tuesday. That was really mm -hmm. cool in Oslo. That was really cool. Like you just you would never imagine that there'd be such a big but operation. It just looks like a normal sports show, right? It could be basketball yeah. or football or whatever. I mean, uh, but they're doing with this with chess is uh, remarkable. Uh, I would not have believed it if I haven't seen it. Right. That's cool. I guess it's the way we can take it all home, which is uh, I mean, what this is the last thing I want to ask you. Like I said, I did I did a uh, I did a 
Fulbright in, in Denmark is coming to a close. Uh -huh. uh, and it's really cool to talk to a you know Danish chess player, a really really like well-renowned uh, Danish chess player about Danish chess. I wanted to ask you, what was your favorite thing about the Danish chess scene? It's all the. I mean, it's been a huge part of my life and such, and uh, it's a lot of people uh, I know. Of course, um, well, it would be tempting to to mention Larsen, but uh, well, he's uh, he's not been he's not here anymore, and he's been for for a while, but. I mean, I think Denmark has a excellent uh, chess culture in, in, in a way. And uh, but generally for me, it's about the, the persons and such. I, I mean, I have so many friends there and uh, it is strange that um, while I don't miss playing chess, I really miss seeing some of the guys in, in Denmark. And for instance, uh, I have played a bit for a third league team. Uh, where you know I come there with my twenty six hundred, I play some some player at nineteen hundred, but I do it just to to hang out with uh, friends and such, and uh, that is nice. So, um, well, for me, it's seeing all these guys that I have known. But of course, maybe if I have to mention one thing that's not just the people, it would be the Danish chess magazine called Skakbladet. I mean, this is a long tradition we have that. Um, well, we use the magazine to actually communicate to the players and uh, to the to the, uh, the the sort of the other members and uh, well uh, as i said i was reading a lot of last stuff there from the library and sort i know he put a lot of effort into that i have made it sort of to try and follow this tradition so every world championship match or tournament i've been part of i have written quite long articles about that and such and well this takes a, it's a while but for me, again, it's more a social thing. I basically imagine that I'm writing to my friends and trying to tell about this. So we have a strong tradition of um, of, of writing in the Danish chess magazine. And, um, well, that's something that uh, I have enjoyed tremendously reading. And now I enjoy a lot uh, using it as a tool of communication uh, and such. So maybe, well, if I have to mention one thing, it's going to be that. Yeah, it was it was fun to hold a copy of a Scott Blooded in uh in uh, Denmark and actually you know read, read I think it was in February when the first uh, issue came about the match and that was that was uh, really cool. Yeah, it was a, it was a long article. Sorry. But, yeah. Uh, well, no, I don't sorry. apologize because I learned because no, no. you know I'm still learning Danish and uh, and it, it was I I I think I improved uh, uh, my listening of of Dansk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. She said your Danish is. Uh, it's not bad at all. So don't I'm worry. Okay. About that. Yeah, yeah. Prova at Taylor Dansk. Yeah, yeah. They go, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I wanted to give one last shout out before we go to the Usabro Chess Club Ubro, uh, which you know really, I played the league tournament there, and the guys were so welcoming. I was not used to having beer during the games. They have a bar there. You know, you think yeah. after the games, but also during the games, uh, you can get yeah. what ten kroner or whatever. So pretty yeah. good. Yeah, that's how. I mean. The Danish chess community is quite relaxed in, in that way, of course. Really relaxed. On the elitist level, maybe not, but um, I think, uh, yeah, it's generally friendly and welcoming and such. You know? I would completely agree. Even as you as not being Danish, I hope uh, my Hanshista has been absolutely no problems integrating and such. Right? Extremely so, welcoming. And, and I have to say, like, it, you know, I mean, you know how Danes can be, you know, a little, little cold or like, not, I won't say cold, but, you know, reserved, let's say. Yeah, to yeah. Uh, you know people outside of Denmark, and uh, you know I think the chess club. I was the only foreigner there, actually. Period, uh, mm -hmm. and they were so welcoming and so kind to me. And uh, you know they they when I want to speak Danish, they spoke but, Danish but, to me, English, you know whatever. And that 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 was really special, I think. But the Danish chess community is small. I mean, of course, on paper we are like uh, maybe around four thousand, but of course 
not that many of them is is playing regularly all the time. So maybe it's not like everybody knows everybody, but to some extent uh, they do in a way, right? Of course, yeah. well, for me, it's a bit special because I was a top player and maybe more will know me than I will know them necessarily. But my impression is that, you know, it's not like we're just one small family, but still, uh, if you're really into chess, uh, you would know most other people who are really into chess and such. So in that sense, uh, it's a nice, uh, nice environment in a lot of ways, no doubt about it. Yeah, now, you know, on my FIDE, I don't even know if I can change my uh, federation, but I'm a Danish player. I'm a part of the Danish federation, according to FIDE. And, you know, so world famous podcast host uh, David Visgon is a Danish chess player. I don't think I'm going to change it either, unless I have to oh, for some reason. No, I, it was, think I think someone was writing in a Danish chat to, is there any Danish chess podcast? But now we can say, yes, there is actually one Danish chess podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. This podcast episode, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. This is really special to, to get your You're welcome. It was fun. Just, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's talk some other time, okay? I'd love to, yeah. But thanks, everybody, for listening to uh, 64 Chess Podcast. Follow us on uh, on Twitter, 64Pod. Follow PH Chess on Twitter. If you're not following Peter on Twitter, you must. Uh, really good follow if you want to stay updated about chess news and, you know, FIDE politics and a little bit of shogi. Also, we didn't even cover that. Yeah. A little bit of shogi, I know. Um, Lithuanian politics. It's, uh, yes. it's a cra- crazy mix but uh, you're, you're most welcome yeah <laughs> but I'm... and uh yeah also i want to shout out chess Bowl. thanks for supporting the podcast as always also go check out the chicken chess club um we are fierce rivals as chess podcasts but today we can be good friends um yeah. i think <laughs> there should be room for us all right yeah there's room for everybody i'm, I'm a very competitive and bitter podcast host so i'm, I'm very unwelcoming to, to anyone who joins the scene uh, i'm sure you can tell it's the kind of person i am yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, but seriously, keep it, keep it up. I lo- I really love the podcast, uh, and uh, I, I'm a huge fan, and I can't wait for the next episode. I'm sure you're going to be taping, and I think you already must have taped one we, there. We, right? we, we did tape something uh, one or two days ago, but uh, I was a bit uh, was a bit rushed. I think I was thinking more about preparation than the podcast and such. But uh, let's see, let's see. If you yeah, know. we'll see how it goes. Well, I'll yeah. I'll let you know. Um, and yeah, thanks everybody so much for listening for all the support recently. Hope you've enjoyed these new episodes and. Uh, Yeah, I'll see you guys next week. Take it easy.